Hello and welcome to Decolonizing Our Minds podcast. This talk is the book launch and panel discussion on Peter Hudis's book, Franz Fanon, Philosopher of the Barricades. From um, my name is Halima, I'm a member of Decolonising Our Minds. Um, so I'm just going to give you a little bit of background info on the society. So a student society that was set up um, in January this year. And um, like the main aim is just challenge neoliberalism and like white supremacy embedded in institutions like SARS. Um, we're inspired by writers like Fanon, so we're really happy to be doing this event today. Um, so I'm just going to thank Professor Peter Hudis, um, Sithi Bhattacharya, Salim Nadi, um, who are on the panel, and Karim, who's going to be chairing it today. Um, and also, I'm going to thank Pluto Press for co-organising this today with Decolonising Our Minds. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Have a good evening. Yeah. Hello. Um, is Matt on? Can you hear me out there? Yeah. yeah, we're good. Okay. Um, welcome, everyone. Um, it's really exciting to be in such a packed room. Um, it's really um, great. I think, I'm, I think it's a reflection of how wonderful the decolonizing our mind society are and the events that they put on and they're organizing and managing to put this all together. Um, I just wanted to, um, I guess, kick things off by briefly going over why um, it's relevant to the decolonizing our mind society or why the decolonizing our mind society wanted to have an event on Fanon. On um, all of the panelists will talk about the continuing relevance of Fanon today, I'm sure. Um, so I just wanted to relate it to the, to, I guess, the very, the very title, if you like, decolonizing our minds. Um, so I think what's distinctive about Fanon is that when we look at his works, he represents a break from, for his time, the original or the typical ways that have um, that colonization has been theorized. So even though Fanon was very much influenced and deeply influenced by the Marxist tradition, and I think Peter would in fact be talking about that. Um, as perhaps we'll said in. Um, he also represents in many respects a break from the Marxist tradition and I guess a deepening or enriching of the Marxist tradition. So one of the things that I've, I've found generally speaking most striking about Adam's work is a very clear awareness of the spatiality of colonialism. What I mean by this is the sort of architecture or the way in which space is organized in the colonies, and it's a very sharp distinction that Fanon draws out between the world of the native and the world of the settler. So I think Fanon um, goes beyond talking about a spatial organization or architectural power that exists in material terms, which is what Marxists will typically talk about. But he also looks at the way in which the architecture of the mind is also segregated, is also divided between that of the native and that of the settler. When you look at reading lists that do include Fanon, and many reading lists don't include Fanon, they should include Fanon. You look at a lot of university reading lists that include Fanon, you'll typically see concerning violence. You'll perhaps get the preface from Sartre, which I recommend you ignore. There's <laughs> very contested, contested, um, I guess, um, attitudes towards whether or not Sartre is worth reading. Probably is worth reading, but yeah, I just find it like, really turgid and difficult to get through, and then you get to Fanon, and it's like, a shot of light and it's all beautiful and brilliant and really concise and yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, um, you typically get, typically get concerning violence. That very famous essay that is the first chapter of this classic, The Wretched of the Earth. And um, what is often overlooked is, I think, an equally classic should be considered a classic um, chapter in that book, which is the fifth chapter, which looks at the so-called mental disorders that are produced by colonialism. What this demonstrates for Fanon is that 
Colonialism was not just a material condition, it was also a psychological condition, one that inscribed the subjectivities of colonized peoples in various different ways. And so liberation, or the decolonial project for Panama, meant not only, not only getting rid of the settler, however which way that was meant to be done, violently or not, that's again the debated idea in Panama, um, but also, also in terms of liberating minds and liberating our subjectivities. And I think decolonizing our mind society very much captures that in the sense of putting on events such as these and exploring critical pedagogies that seek to decolonize the mind. And I think each of the contributors today, I'm going to introduce them in a minute, sorry, I haven't done that yet. Um, each of the contributors today, um, hopefully, I'm sure, do provide some contributions precisely to that. So um, the first thing to say is that Pluto Press have been shunted to the corner over there, um, the sponsors of this event. Um, they've got um, Peter Houdis, whose um, book has just come out, um, Frank's Final Philosopher of the Barricades. There's copies of that book over there, as well as uh, Frank's Fanon's very own classic, Black Skin, White Masks, and also a Frank's Fanon reader, if I'm not mistaken, and a Frank's Fanon reader. So do check out um, all those over there. So, um, yeah, so we welcome today uh, Peter Houdis, whose uh, new biography of Fanon. Um, provides, I think, very much a contribution to this practice of critical, critical learning and hopefully radical practice. Uh, Peter is a professor of philosophy and um, humanities at Oakton Community College in Illinois in the United States. Um, in addition to um, Philosopher of Barricades, um, he's also the author of Marx's Concept of the Alternative to Capitalism, and he's also edited the Rosa Luxemburg Reader and the Letters of Rosa Luxemburg. Um, we're also joined by Titi Bhattacharya, who is a professor of South Asian history at Purdue University in Indiana. Her biography is illustrious, so I'm going to try to keep it as short as possible. That's enough. That's enough. She's written, she's written loads of good books. <laughs> and she's also um, um, long a long-time activist for Palestinian justice. Um, finally, last but not least, we have Selim Nadi, who is a PhD student at the Centre for History at Sciences Po um, in Paris. Um, he's also part of the French Marxist uh, theoretical journal, Pit Pegriot. Um, I can't speak French, so I can't vouch for its quality. I have an interview in there, so it must be all right. <laughs> <laughs> it looks brilliant. The, the, the website looks fantastic. <laughs> um, he's also a member of the, excuse my French here, Parti des Indigenes. Um, it's the French decolonial party. Um, we're going to go in reverse order to my introduction. So Selin's going to kick us off. Um, um, we followed by Titi, and then we go on to uh, Peter. Each will have about 15 minutes to talk, and then we'll open the floor for questions. Um, we've got a room until nine. Um, if the discussion is flowing, we might try to take this a bit and go beyond nine if we can. Um, we'll see. We'll see how it unfolds. But yeah. Um, okay. So over to Selin. <coughs> so first I want to apologize because I will read my paper as um, my English is very, very not good. So I want to thank the Decolonizing Our Mind Society and Pluto Press to offer me the chance to discuss Peter Hell's book about uh, Franz Fanon. So Fanon is a key thinker uh, for today's struggles, and it is not coincidence that especially in the time in the times we are living, this figure became such an important reference. 
So this is one reason, uh, many others, why people have this book is very important for the present conjecture. So another reason uh, stands in the fact that it contextualized uh, very good famous uh, uh, political ideas uh, in order to uh, actualize them. So to see uh, how relevant Panon is for today's um, context. So because it starts with uh, the decision of a New York grand jury not to elect the murderer of Eric Garner, but actually there are plenty <coughs> other examples of this. This year, in May 2015, the French police officers who were responsible for the death of Ziad Bena and Buna Traoré in 2005 in a French working class suburb were also acquitted. And there are other examples like this. So I've taken a French example, uh, but there are other in many other countries. However, this is only the visible part of the iceberg, as postcolonial racism being based on a global system to produce a racial ranking. Uh, this system may take various forms, ideological, cultural, social, and of course, economic. So thus, as a contribution in the current conjecture, this book is a great achievement in giving to Fanon its place <coughs> as a major revolutionary of the 20th century and as an inspiration for today's struggle. So one cannot separate the revolutionary from the theorist. Um, Fanon was too often, at least in the French-speaking field, apprehended only as an action man. Uh, and as Lewis Gordon wrote, black intellectuals like Fanon are frequently treated in pure biographical terms. On this point, Peter's book is a very serious work in not separating the series from the revolutionary and by contextualizing uh, Fanon's political theory. My main interest here will be to focus both on Fanon's place in the history of political ideas, uh, but also of uh, his relevance for today. So I will mainly focus on Fanon's writing on colonialism, because uh, it represents a big step in, in, in Fanon's uh, So, because, uh, as you might know, uh, the articles she wrote for El Mujahid, uh, the uh, FLN journal, uh, weren't signed by Fanon. They were anonymous, and uh, so they were uh, historical work to find out which articles were written by Fanon. Uh, but maybe we can discuss this after, but it's very important to say and uh, also in a, in a correspondence with his publisher, uh, Maspero, Fanon wrote that um, so the articles he wrote in, in El Mujahid, uh, the, the Wretched of the Earth, is only the logical um, uh, pursuit of, of, of the articles he wrote uh, in the FLN journal. So his experience with the FLN is, uh, is very important. But of course, uh, we can discuss <coughs> other aspects uh, of Fanon's work afterwards. So, in Peter's book, the concept of humanism comes back a lot, which seems particularly, particularly logic, both because of the use that Fanon did of this term, and of course of the influence uh, Raya Dunevsky's Marxist humanism had on Peter's political analysis. Um, but the adoption of these terms uh, raises a lot of questions. Um, an objection one could make is obviously the use that was made of this concept by the French colonial power. As a historian, uh, Francis Arzalier wrote, a myth has developed itself in France and in a part of the French left. So I quote, French colonialism and imperialism are exceptions in the history of Euro European imperialism, a kind of soft and humanist version of colonialism in opposition to Anglo-Saxon or German brutal expansionism, end of quote. So, but as Peter shows in his book, 
uh, Franz Fanon took this concept in order to redefine it uh, in an anti-colonial uh, way. So, indeed, Fanon did not um, apprehend the human as an abstract substance, but as a social relation that defined, <coughs> defines him. And this is obvious in uh, Fanon's role as a psychiatrist, who shows the importance of the lived experience in Fanon's humanism. As Peter Hedes uh, highlights in the second chapter of his book, Fanon did not apprehend psychiatry as a purely individual aspect of, of medicine. Uh, to Fanon, affective disorders are caused by the socio-economic relation and not by some human substance. Um, I think, I hope, today uh, this seems very obvious to everyone, but we really should remember that the colonial, uh, the colonial and the decolonial struggle also took place in the medical field. In a psychiatry manual from 1952, we edited in 1969, um, so after um, Algeria uh, went uh, independent, the research team of Professor uh, Antoine Porot, the founder of the Algeria uh, Psychiatric School and well known for his racist theories, wrote that North African indigenous had, I quote, a murderous potential, a poor appetite for work, abulia, whims, and impulsiveness, end of quote. But Fanon's answer to such ideas was not to know about Reza Poros' racist ideas are true or false, because it would only be reversing the image of the colonized. It would be put the struggle on the level of representation. Uh, so Fanon wanted to deal with the reality the colonized are living. And the first very concrete aspect of that is that doctors, so not just psychiatrists, in a colonial context are also very often landowners and are directly privileged by the colonial situation. The second aspect is the defense mechanism that the philosopher uh, Mathieu Renaud defines as a political psychology. In A Dying Colonialism, Fanon wrote, I quote, the colonial situation is precisely such that it drives the colonized to appraise all the colonizers' contribution in a pejorative and absolute way. The colonized perceived, uh, perceives the doctor the engineer, the school teacher, the policeman, um, the rural constable through the haze of an almost organic confusion. The compulsory visit by the doctor is preceded by the assembling of the population through the agency of the police authorities. The doctor who arrives in this atmosphere of general constraint is never a native doctor, but always a doctor belonging to the dominant society and very often to the army. End of course. So the result of this colonial role of medicine, and especially of psychiatry, is that the body of the colonized developed a kind of defense mechanism. So this is the second point. Um, thus the laziness of the Algerian at work is analyzed as a form of resistance against colonialism. Fanon tried to rethink psychiatric analysis, but also the psychiatric institution in the, in the colonial context. So this is just uh, one example of how important uh, the lived experience of the colonized was to Fanon, but the lived experience that is not purely uh, individual <coughs> um, and that cannot pose without an, an analysis of the colonial system and its structures. Uh, so thus, he's extracting humanism from the French Republican framework where it was confined in order to develop uh, his decolonial view of psychiatry. Um, <coughs> so Fanon's role as a psychiatrist was very important. As Daniel Guérin uh, wrote in his book about the Algerian Revolution, uh, entitled Quand l'Algérie sans, sans sujet. So, 
in this book, Guerin wrote that when he was working on his book about uh, um, the Antilles uh, in 1955, with the help of Eric Williams, he wanted to organize a conference in Paris the same year in order to invite Eric Williams, Aimé Césaire, and Franz Fanon. But Fanon had to decline the invitation because he had to participate at the conference in Algiers about fear in Algeria. And he wrote to Guerin that this is, I thought, this is a very actual problem. Kind of so Guerin did not see Fanon anymore uh, until 1957. But at that, at that time, the situation had changed. At that time, Fanon was literally hunted by the French authorities because he used to hide FLM members both uh, at the Blida hospital and at his home, and was medically helping FLM members. So I hope it's, uh, uh, everybody knows that, but the FLM um, is the, the National Liberation Front from um, Algeria. Um, but well, well, even if these two revolutionary figures, Guerin and Fanon, were very close, they disagreed uh, on um, when Fanon was, I quote, hoping to see Messali, so Messali Hatch, in hell. So this is another point we can maybe <laughs> discuss after, but uh, just the relation between the North African stars uh, and the FLM. Um, so this kind of anti-colonial reappropriation is also very obvious, obvious when it came to language, as Peter Hodges wrote in his chapter about the strategies of revolution. So the Fran Francophonie had, and always has, a very important role in the French colonial project. Um, so it is interesting to compare Fanon's analysis of language and colonial context to those of Leopold Sédar one of the main figures of the Negritude movement. So Cesar was another figure, but um, well, on a political, political point of view, they were not the same. So Senghor always says that he sings in French better than in his own language, that he speaks French better than the French, um, and he did absolutely not think that French was imposed by imperialism. He was agrégé, so uh, it's a high diploma, um, in French grammar, um, and had a particular love for France. On the other side, Fanon analyzed the role played by language, mainly through uh, Radio Alger. So the relation from the colonized to the colonizer voice and, and uh, language had two phases. The first one is the phase of reject, uh, because this radio was the colonizer's voice. And uh, the second phase was a phase of reappropriation when entering the anti-colonial struggles. The resistance against colonialism was producing a new language showing the contradiction of every uh, language. So as the great novelist Katel Yassin uh, once told, to the Algerian, French, to the French language, is a war booty. And so um, this new way of using the French language participate to the produce, uh, to, to producing of a new kind uh, of subject in a post-colonial situation. In his book, A Marx Philosophy of Language, the linguist uh, Jean-Jacques Le wrote that every single language is composed by linguistic struggle. So national di dialects, uh, registers, idioms, etc. So and even if he wrote this about uh, the English language, I think it's very um, obvious um, about uh, the French colonial context. So these two examples about, examples about psychiatry and about language shows that even if Fanon was not a Marxist, his analysis of the colonial situation had nothing to do with some abstract analysis of post-colonialism. Uh, so furthermore, Fanon's uh, framework should help us to work on the post-colonial materialism, but also to work on some conceptual blind spots, the whole part of the left. Uh, uh, so uh, maybe we can discuss this after. Um, 
that uh, in the French uh, context is very, very, very obvious. Um, so Peter's book analyzes very well a lot of Fanon's references, from Hegel and Sartre to Césaire. But I think that by analyzing Fanon's work, uh, one should not only look at his explicit references. As Mathieu Renaud has written in an article published in the Nottingham French Studies Journal, we can look at his implicit influences in doing a more historical work. Thus, by looking at the Franz Fanon Library in Alger, Renaud has pointed out that Fanon was reading the work of Lenin. Thus, I have quoted all the Marxists that he was reading. <laughs> one can find in Fanon's library what is to be done, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, and the state of revolution, uh, the state and revolution. But what is more interesting is the annotation Fanon wrote in Lenin's um, text, The Collapse of the Civil International, and especially Fanon's interest for the term social chauvinism. <coughs> Uh, as Félix Pochou, Evan J.P. and Stella Magdalene de Kassem wrote in a paper presented during the 2013 <laughs> uh, in London, social chauvinism was not a political category clearly defined by Lenin. It is a blurry word, even a slur. Lenin, Lenin was using this word in order to describe the alliance between major social democratic forces and their own imperialist state. Um, so, of course, when Fanon was fighting with the FLN, the term social chauvinism had become very actual to describe the attitude of the French Communist Party. Uh, so we can discuss this after because I have not much time. Um, and another influence um, was the work of Tram Duc Tao, um, uh, uh, who worked a lot about phenomenology. Um, but it's, it's two articles written in the Temps Modern about the Vietnamese Revolution. <coughs> so yeah, so I'm just uh, in Sartre's uh, journal. And here we refer to a 1947 paper entitled On the Trotsky's Interpretation of the Indochina Events. So uh, one has to say that Khan uh, Tao was not very um, Trotsky's friendly. Um, <laughs> so, so since time is running, I cannot get a complete analysis of this article. And the probable influence it had on Fanon, that it was a, a fight with uh, Claude de Faure, uh, a Trotskyist philosopher who became a member of a communist um, socialist and barbary later. Um, so, beside uh, the, analysis, the concrete analysis of Tao, what is important uh, is that a lot of European Marxists are just taking a theory in order to extract it from its specific context and to apply it on Indochina. Uh, so even in supporting, according to Frankel, on a rhetorical way the Vietnamese Revolution, some Marxist groups are objectives aliens of imperialism. So in the same way, Fanon is very critical concerning the idea that there is a spontaneous solidarity between um, the proletarian from the, uh, the colonized countries uh, and this from the imperialist countries. He wrote that, I quote, Today, we can measure the lack of realism of the well-known doctrine according to which it exists an organic solidarity between the proletariat of the colonizing country and the proletariat of those from the colonized people. The colonized people who fight for their independence can only count on their colonized brother, end of quote. But um, after that, she explained very well that it would also be a mistake to think that it exists an instinctive and spontaneous solidarity between colonized subjects. Um, so, we can discuss a long time about the Marx influence on Fanon, um, but I, okay, <laughs> but, uh, I don't have much time. So, um, well, I will conclude. I have a, 
uh, well, another point on uh, uh, religion that uh, just can, comes out in the discussion after. Uh, to conclude, uh, on this book, um, so Peter wrote at the end of the book that a quote, a movement, a movement is phenomenal insofar and only insofar as it re-examines the question of humanity, rejuvenates it, and actualizes it. So I cannot express myself on the importance of re-examining re humanity uh, because um, I think uh, this notion um, uh, needs more discussion uh, as it, it is very broad today. A lot of people are using this, this word. Um, so, well, maybe to me, a phenomenon movement is a decolonial movement that is not slave of the slavery that unhumanized for fathers and mothers, like Panovro, for perpetual prisoner of dead people, nor does decolonizing mean a combat to a pre-colonial situation or an abstract critic of values, prejudices, or ideas that came from the colonial era. It means to have an analysis of the post-colonial roots of today's racism, a concrete analysis of a concrete situation, which means to historicize racism in order to fight it uh, against it. Um, so in this, Fanon is a key decolonial thinker, and I think Peter Hulley's uh, book is a major book about this key thinker. Um, and forgive my lenient sign discipline with the chairing. Um, next up, yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> so the first thing to say about um, Fanon is the real tribute to Fanon is actually this room. Yeah. This is what a real tribute to Fanon would look like. So I'd like to begin by thanking Decolonizing Our Mind Society for giving us the opportunity to be actually in the same room with an amazing crowd like this. So thank you. Peter Hudis has written a wonderful biography of Franz Fanon. We have a debt of gratitude to Pluto Press and to my friend and comrade Paul LeBlanc, the series editor, for this project of reanimating revolutionary lives. But to Peter, we owe a particular gratitude, for Peter did not write a simple narrative biography of Fanon. That would have been a historicist exercise in which the past of Fanon would connect seamlessly to our present and we draw lessons from it. But the past is a tricky customer and both Fanon and Peter understand that well. So following the methodology that Walter Benjamin recommends, Peter has blasted Fanon out of linear empty time and has constellated for us moments in Fanon that are necessary to consider for our present. These distilled Fanonian moments that Peter offers us may have been important or may not have been important for those seeking to change the world in Fanon's own time, but they're recognizably relevant for our times and what is significant is how Peter has captured this fugitive concepts to help change the world for a new generation. So I will outline a few of those moments that Peter has picked that have flashed for him in our 
or moment of danger and explore their significance. The first, Fanon's steadfast rejection of an ontology of blackness or negritude. It is Fanon, of course, who contends that there is no real to blackness and hence it can have no ontology. But it is Peter who rescues this vital insight and assembles it for us in its full figuration. Blackness for Fanon is not a natural reality. It is not a form of being that just is. Blackness is instead a construct of specific social relations. It is produced, fabricated, not simply given. The black exists as black only in relation to the white. There is no pre-existing black essence that a black person can fall back upon. This is uncoped from Peter. Fanon is not interested in race per se, but in the functioning of racism, and not in the functioning of racism because it is a social scientific curio, but in order to abolish it. <coughs> Here, Peter is reanimating for us an aspect of anti-racist praxis that cannot be emphasized enough for our times, that race is a social relation and its reality is constituted and limited by those specific social relations. But what are those relations? This brings me to the second and related phenomenon moment that Peter highlights. The arabesque, the dance of race and class or oppression and its economic roots. Peter begins by highlighting Fanon's criticism of Octave Mononi's significant work, Prospero and Caliban, one of the, I quote, first attempts of applying psychology to a critique of colonialism, unquote. Fanon took issue with Mononi's contention that colonialism in Madagascar resulted from a dependency complex, that's what Monodi called it, born by the natives rather than from social or economic domination. For Fanon, deeply interested as he is, as he was in exploring the interiority of racism, this explanation that racism is a dependency complex is utterly unacceptable. And Peter draws out Fanon's consistently explanatory framework for racism thus, and I'm quoting from Peter's book. Racism is not produced by some exceptional character structure or flaw on the part of its victims. Racism is produced by a structure of colonial and class domination that is wedded to specific socioeconomic determinants. This is what makes it ubiquitous, unquote. It goes without saying, of course, that this recognition or lack of it between race and class is still haunting us. So when Peter draws our attention to Fanon's debate with Sartre about this, we find resemblances that bear uncanny echoes of the present. So this is a quote again from Peter, 
In Black Orpheus, Sartre refers to black consciousness and pride as a weak stage that must be ultimately that must ultimately give way to the proletarian class struggle. For Sartre, race is a mere particular, class is the universal. Unquote. Peter here is critically employing Fanon's conceptual apparatus to prize open the deadlock between race and class or the economic and extra economic. Sartre, Peter tells us with some humor, has forgotten Hegel's most important insight. Um, and I quote that the absolute is imminent in each phase, even though it makes its full appearance only at the end, unquote. With Peter, Fanon, and by extension Hegel, are in very good hands. This rich understanding of race and class that Peter offers us here, which in truth I would like to have hear more of, is taking on not just the reductive views regarding the singular abstraction of a separate race, which is an absolute, from a separate class, which is yet another absolute, but also the mechanistic view, or what Hegel calls mechanism, of an absolute race just intermingling with an absolute class. So all we need to do is assemble these categories together. Peter is reminding us of what is a core Hegelian and also a Marxist insight, that social relations are dynamic and co-constitutive of each other. Hence the presence of the absolute in all medium-term phenomena. If this were not thought-provoking enough, Peter also forces us to reassess any easy integration of Franz Fanon into third world post-coloniality. Peter here stands in the tradition of scholars such as David Macy, Henry Louis Gates, Neil Lazarus, and others, who have in the past called for a corrective rehistoricization of Fanon, rescuing his fierce and concrete anti-colonialism from the enchantments of a depoliticized postmodern. Peter achieved this in two interesting ways. First, he carefully and attentively passes out the categories of race, class, and nation. Unlike a certain variety of postcolonial scholarship that posits Fanon as the uncritical champion of insurgent nationalism, Peter shows both the nuances and the ongoing development in Fanon's thought regarding these implicated issues. So, for instance, consider when Fanon burns his bridges with the organized left in France for their shameful support of French colonial rule in the Maghreb. Consider that incident. This is where the post-colonial scholar often abundance the trail. Indeed, it can be proved that Fanon has turned against Europe as a whole, as he raises his voice on occasion against the working class of the colonial regime who ought to have supported the war against the colonial power, ought to have supported the, uh, the nationalist struggle in Algeria, but failed to live up to that task. But Peter, 
does not make that argument. Peter does not abandon the narrative here. Instead, he carefully reconstructs Fanon's continuing faith in and expectation of the working class of the exploiting country. As Fanon talks about, and Peter quotes Fanon here, the internal relation, says Fanon, that unites the oppressed peoples to the exploited masses of the colonialist countries, unquote. The second strategy that Peter adopts in this regard is to recenter Fanon's deep animosity of the nationalist bourgeoisie whom Fanon designated to be, and I quote, the most impetuous, the most enterprising, the most annexationist in the world, unquote. <laughs> Indeed, Peter here excavates Fanon's references to the Commentant's Baku Conference in 1920 as Fanon tries to bring his anti-imperialism in conversation with an emerging understanding of the combined and uneven nature of capitalist development. This is not any simplistic notion of the third world where class hostilities can be postponed or masked in the name of national unity. This is a Fanon painted by Peter who is as intransigent in his opposition to the new indigenous ruling class of the post-colonial nation state as he was to their colonial masters. With Benjamin's advice on temporality in mind and with Peter's aid, then we capture from the past the Fanon that we need for our times. A Fanon who is a fierce anti-racist but denies any essence to blackness. A Fanon who is a fierce anti-imperialist but deeply hostile to bourgeois nationalism. A Fanon who relentlessly exposes the Islamophobia and racism even of sections of the left but only by holding them to the best emancipatory standards of the Enlightenment. Peter's Fanon is not without flaws, meaning not the book, but the, this is not a hagiography of Fanon. So his unhelpful silence, Fanon's unhelpful silence on Hungary 1956, for instance, is not passed over by Peter. But what Peter has done in his critical assessment of Fanon is identified the possibilities deposited in the past. And in that, he has actualized Fanon for our present. The alert reader is forced to reckon with not just Franz Fanon as past, but Franz Fanon's political project as an invitation to recommit to transformatory politics in the here and now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, uh, last but not least, Peter.
Well, thank you all very much for being here. Thank you for your both fascinating and stimulating discussions. And I'm most of all uh, looking forward to hearing your ideas and your discussion. I'll say a few words here in response to both presentations and try to say a few words about why I wrote the book and what I'm trying to get at in doing so. But I really came here, most of all, to find out what Fanon means to you. And what Fanon, because to understand what Fanon means to this, for this moment is really to get an answer to that question. What draws you to him, and what are you looking for in Fanon? Before I go any further, I just want to, uh, uh, however, just say a word of thanks, of course, to Pluto Press uh, and the work uh, in helping to publish this book, but especially to David Castle, uh, who uh, approached me to write this book. Uh, and um, first, I wasn't sure, uh, well, uh, is that uh, something that uh, will really speak to the present moment or not? This was a few years ago. Well, look at what we now know. Um, there is a clearly a renaissance of Fanon occurring uh, in not only the English-speaking world, but uh, elsewhere. Just came off the press very recently in French, a collection of his previously unpublished writings on psychiatry and other writings. Uh, there's at least four other books in English on Fanon that have already been published or that will soon be published in the next couple of months. So something is clearly in the air. So the question is, what is it? Well, but this renaissance is not just a question of books, and certainly not a question of academic discussions. Because what's very clear is that the specter of Fanon has resurfaced in numerous uh, protests and numerous uh, efforts to contest uh, the racist character of modern society. And we see it all over the place. I saw it most vividly at a demonstration after the decision not to indict the cops who murdered Eric Garner in New York where I'm walking down the street and I see a big banner unfurled uh, with a quotation from Franz Fanon on it, uh, saying that we revolt because we can no longer breathe. Um, and uh, what was seen in numerous cases uh, in the United States, but also in Europe and elsewhere, whether it's in response to the uh, uh, horrible police abuse, which in the US especially is uh, uh, everyday fact of life, uh, to the European refugee crisis, and it's a clearly racist character of discrimination against those fleeing from the Middle East and North Africa, uh, to the battles against austerity, raising of tuition, cutting of student loans, uh, elimination of the social welfare uh, uh, of, uh, state, in many sense that it still exists. What we're clearly seeing is that Fanon is coming back into discussion right within these events. So why is that happening and what does that signify? Well, what I wanted to do is write the book uh, against the background of, however, a kind of, a, a kind of an exhaustion of Fanon, an exhaustion of a kind of way of discussing Fanon, which I think we have to put aside or put behind us to a certain degree. A kind of discussion of Fanon that had become very predominant in the last 20 or 25 years, especially in academia, uh, which tried to divest Fanon, basically, of his humanism, as if that was a dirty word, but Fanon was not. Fanon was not a dirty word, although, of course, what he meant by humanism was not bourgeois enlightened humanism. Uh, to divest Fanon from any relationship to Marxism, he was by no means an orthodox Marxist, and I think that was wonderful about him. Uh, I think he tried to stretch and recreate and rethink Marx, but there's definitely a legacy and a connection to Marx's ideas that we find in Fanon, which often has been denied or passed over. And as you just mentioned, there's also this link to Hegel's philosophy, which is especially visible in black skin, white masks. But I would argue, if you really get to understand uh, the breadth of Fanon's contribution, you can see an underlying philosophical Hegelian structure to almost everything he wrote. But I hope you'll 
be convinced of that in due time. Um, why am I taking issue, however, with those that divest the known of these various different dimensions? The reason is, is because it makes it harder for us to actualize Fanon as a political figure, or ideas that Fanon developed, within the political contest that confront us today in the world that we're living in. Because if we're dealing with a kind of a manufactured Fanon that is amenable simply to certain discussions of alterity and difference, but has little to say about how to create a new humanity that would put an end to the racism that has defined Western so-called civilization for centuries, well, then that's a kind of phenomenon that doesn't do justice to what this man was about. Now, my book is largely devoted to trying to draw a line against this reading or misreading of phenomenon that has characterized too many discussions in the last uh, uh, generation, and tries to resituate his ideas in relationship to the struggle for a new humanism by trying to capture what's the unifying theme of his multi-dimensional work as a philosopher, as a psychiatrist, as a revolutionary activist. I don't think you can really get Fanon unless you see how the three pieces fit together, because they're not really pieces at all, but they're part of a lifelong project. But I want to make it clear, this is not for academic purposes or for hagiography. As you mentioned, uh, uh, it's not Fanon uh, as person that uh, we bow to, but we're trying to critically use his ideas to try to think out the problems of our own era. So what is the problem of our own era that I think that this, uh, this renaissance of Fanon can most contribute to? Well, frankly, let's be honest. What is the single most important theoretical and practical task facing every one of us today? It's working out a viable alternative to both existing capitalism and all forms of failed statist so-called socialism that have existed in the 20th century. That is, if there's not an alternative vision that challenges the ideological dominance of capital in the 21st century, if we don't practically move from an articulation of such a vision to its implementation in some way, shape, or form, I don't know whether uh, our, our uh, civilization as we know it has really fundamentally any future. I can think of simply no more important task than to work out a genuine alternative to capitalism. Not state domination, not simply replacing one ruling class by another, and not simply a mere amelioration of conditions of racial discrimination and class domination, but a fundamental social uprooting. Well, we're far away at this point still from working out such an alternative vision, let alone implementing it, aren't we? But I think if we fail to make real progress on this question, history will judge us very uh, harshly. And we are the generation, and I put myself in that generation. <laughs> I always tell my students that, you know, just think about what the world is gonna look like when you're my age in seven or eight years from now. <laughs> but in any case, uh, if we don't make progress on this question, uh, well, what progress in anything else could we make? Now, as both Celine and Tithi have indicated uh, very uh, beautifully, uh, to work out that alternative to capitalism, I think we have to, we need a theoretical view that contests two basic attitudes. One, we have to go beyond an orthodox or a standard Marxism, or maybe Marxism as a whole, as it's been understood, that would view race and racism as merely epiphenomenal or of secondary importance. We live in a world in which class relations are structured through race and ethnic relations. That's always been true in the United States history. Class has always been shaped by race, as 
Uh, Hubert Harrison put it back in the 1920s. In this sense, race comes first. Huh? That is, it doesn't mean dismissing class, but it means understanding that class relations can't exist in the way that they do uh, without being structured by racial determinations. If there's any kind of a Marxism that doesn't face up to that, well, it's about 100 years to lay that to the door in a certain sense. Set, so we have to go beyond the kind of Marxism that would resist that acknowledgement. The second is to go against, also to go against a politics, however, that would see race and racism separated or completely autonomous from capitalist relations of production and the logic of capital. Now, you can't reduce one to the other, because there is a homology between these two factors of race and class, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a connection. Two things can be distinct but still connected. And how could we overcome the racist character of what we might call this decrepit late stage of capitalism unless we take issue with the logic of capital itself? Now, where I think Fanon really becomes important for our era is that he pushes against both of these standpoints. He had a dialogue uh, with Marxists, various persuasions from early on in his career. He never identified with any existing tendency of Marxism, however. And I think that that is a very healthy thing in retrospect. Because I think that he did not feel that those tendencies spoke to his lived experience as a black man. Um, the Marxism was too narrow, too rigid, too deterministic, too statist. Even when there were creative Marxists that he dialogued with, like Daniel Guerin, they became an anarchist, of course, and a very important champion of gay liberation. Fanon, nevertheless, was very emphatic that a certain type of Marxism was not adequate. But at the same time, he didn't wait for Marx or Marxism, at least Marx is Marxism. He says we need to stretch the Marxian analysis to deal with these issues of race. Stretch, not reject or dismiss. But at the same time, he also understood that, as he puts it, from the very first pages of Black Skin, White Masks, that you cannot understand the logic of racism independent from the logic of capital. Now, it's in this sense that I think Fanon can wake us up in many respects and give birth to some new perspectives. Because, you see, in my view, nothing has done greater damage to Marx than Marxism. Um, how many people, even to this day, will acknowledge that uh, Marx, far from simply being a theorist of class struggle, or uh, somebody whose ideas were limited to a couple of essays he wrote in India in 1853 where he said a couple of really uninformed things about the progressive character of British civilization upon India. But how many people know that in the last 15 years of his life he broke from that conception, studied intently developing societies in Russia, in, in Australia, in northern India, in northern Africa, lived for several months in, in Tunisia, as a matter of fact, uh, imbibed and studied and tried to dialogue with uh, Arab culture. I did an essay spelling this out called Marxism Amongst the Muslims. That is that Marx was looking at the end of his life of alternative paths to revolution that would center on communal social formations in the non-Western world as a path to the future and rejected a kind of historical determinism that argues that indigenous social formations or non-capitalist social formations are inevitably going to be flattened out and destroyed by the logic of capital says that that doesn't necessarily have to be, that you can elicit from those dimensions a resistance to the logic of capital itself. But at the same time, I think Fanon's brilliance was not to stop at Marx, but to go where Marx did not tread. 
and that is to explore the interior psychic life, psychic life of racism. Now, just to say a word on this, it's not like there weren't important Marxists who singled out the racist impact of capital accumulation. I'll mention one of my favorite figures in this, Rosa Luxemburg. Uh, if you read her accumulation of capital, few books have ever been written that have more painted a more devastating picture of the impact of capitalism upon the non-Western world, especially France's occupation of Algeria, where you'll be shedding tears when you read what Rosa says and denouncing this entire process. But you know, even with Rosa at Luxembourg, what you don't get is a concentration on racism's in impact on shaping the interior life of the subject, in shaping how we see the other, and how we therefore don't see the other, because of the impact of these racialized categories. What kind of psychic distress that this causes? What kind of alienation? And most of all, how one could work one's way out of that interior alienation, that sense of inferiority, that sense of loss of self, that loss of self-esteem. That you're not going to find in even some of the most creative thinkers in this tradition. Fanon does point us in that direction. He did brilliant work on this, both in his political work, his philosophical work, and his psychiatric work. And I think that this is where we have to look to in order to uh, work out this conception of an alternative to capitalism that takes account of the multiple forms in which capitalism generates its forms of oppression. We haven't mentioned gender yet tonight. Fanon actually had more to say on this issue as well uh, than many people realize. And of course, Fanon's a brilliant conception of how the, which was very Hegelian conception, that the formation of selfhood depends on recognition from the other, which he didn't mean by that, by the way, begging for recognition from the white dominant society. That's not what he meant by that. It wasn't a liberal theory of recognition. It was, a matter of fact, Fanon makes it very clear that it's fruitless to ask for recognition from the dominant forces of society when those dominant forces don't even recognize you as human because of the color of your skin. But there still is a need for intersubjective recognition between human beings who are aspiring for social transformation and liberation. And many feminist theorists have picked this aspect up on Fanon to try to theorize a non-alienated form of gender relationships. Now, I'm not suggesting that Fanon is going to give us an answer to the questions of gender and feminism that we need for the 21st century, far from it. But there's something there that we can explore and uh, develop uh, anew. Now, to just say just a few words in conclusion, I'm not suggesting that Fanon in any way, shape, or form answers the problem of what constitutes the viable alternative to capitalism today. We have to answer the problems of our era, not his. That's true of Fanon, whether we're talking about him or whether we're talking about Marx. What matters is not what Marx said in 1843 or 1883, but what Marx's Marxism or Marx's humanism means for today. What matters to us is not even what Fanon said in 1947 or 1957, though that's very important. Ultimately, what it means is how can his effort to look at the realities of his time and see how can a new humanity, a new humanism that reorganizes social relationships from the most intimate level, how can that be something that comes out of the very struggle against the dominating exploitative forces of existing society itself? <coughs> That's why we want, I think, to re-engage with Fanon is so that we can learn how to engage in the realities of our time with that type of methodology and that type of conception. Clearly, however, we need as many sources as possible to grapple with this extremely difficult problem. What is a genuine alternative to both existing capitalism and what called itself the alternative to it over the past century? 
We're certainly not going to make headway on it if we ignore one of the most important thinkers on race and racism uh, of the 20th century, which clearly he was. Moreover, by exploring how Fanon recast the ideas of Hegel, Marx, Freud, Sartre, Lacan, the negative poets, etc., in light of the specific realities of the colonized subject, we can learn how to avoid formulaic and mechanical applications of our own intellectual legacies for dealing with the 21st century. One of the greatest problems we have to always face as theoreticians uh, is to become so in love with your own thought <laughs> that new realities are simply acknowledged only if they fit into the parameter that you've already established for viewing them. And I find this to be a problem not only among uh, people from all sorts of disciplines and backgrounds, I also find it to be a problem in those who say you shouldn't do this. Uh, but you see, it's a, it's a harder thing to really to, to, to engage in a non-formulaic, but a creative rethinking of what does Marx's ideas mean for the 21st century? What does Fanon's ideas mean for the 21st century? What does other intellectual sources mean for our time? In a certain sense, it means that you have to, as it were, put aside your prior conclusions, grasp the dialectic of the thing itself that's before you, get a, a complex and complete understanding of what's required by the realities of your historical moment, and rethink it all out anew based on the, based on the moment that's before you. That's why uh, when I began the book by saying that Fanon says very early in his first book, I'm not the bearer of absolute truths. I think that it was one of the most profound uh, statements he ever made. As I put it, uh, Fanon said that because he believed that every one of us is the zero point of our orientation. You can only know the world through the vantage point of your subjective standpoint upon reality. This is the cent central to his phenomenological method that he learned from Husserl and others. And I think that what uh, Fanon uh, can teach us is that we can grasp universal truths from the standpoint of our particular horizon if we creatively deal with thought, not as a series of dead conclusions, but as an opening to uh, a struggle for new human relations uh, on all sorts of different levels. So it's in this spirit that uh, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, perhaps how Fanon has impacted you on different levels, uh, or what you uh, want to learn more about Fanon's possibility of doing so.
Okay, um, so show of hands for questions, please. Um, we don't have a mic to go around, but the acoustics are decent, so if you just like to speak up a bit so we make sure everyone can hear. We'll take about three questions at a time, go back to the panelists, and then go back to you. So, yeah, over there. So, um, well, first, first of all, thanks for everything you said there. It's been very enlightening for me. Um, my question is to Peter. You've done a lot of extensive research on France. Um, so, you've mentioned about finding a solution that is not Marxist and not uh, capitalist. So, for me, what I'd like to ask you is, if, if you were going to start a society from scratch, and you had to pick three attributes to have of this society, what do you think, between your studies of France and yourself, what do you think these attributes would be? <coughs> Yes. So I would like to first of all thank you so much for such an interesting presentation to all the three speakers. Uh, I would like to begin by answering uh, the question that was posed in the beginning, what did uh, Fanon meant for us? And I found it very interesting that I had two encounters with Fanon this year. First was when they showed here the uh, Concerning Violence movie. And I'm from Portugal, and I'm the son of the decolonial movement of the African colonies. And it was the first time that I was able to see the images and the footages of the resistance movement, because most of the footages was, were of uh, Guinea-Bissau, of Mozambique, and Angola liberation movements. And I think it's very interesting to see how. Uh, and the second encounter was, I was reading Fanon, while Syriza won the elections before they uh, capitulated. And I found there to be a very interesting juxtaposition and Fanon allows us to think very well about what colonialism means. And, uh, because, and I would like to uh, uh, note that after, after the speakers uh, under, there, under, what do they think that uh, we can understand how Fanon helps us to understand today the situation in which colonialism is spreading from outside Europe to within Europe because can we not with Fanon understand what's happening in Greece and what's happening in Portugal as new colonial uh, situations and how does Fanon help us into making sense of it? Yeah, I was wondering about that. There's a gentleman who spoke first uh, talked about how Fanon actually published in a, in a, in a magazine called the Mujahid. And I was wondering if you could shed light on how he approached the question of political Islam uh, as part of the, the colonial struggle uh, against colonialism. And I think that could shed light on Okay, um, yes, uh, first of all, uh, very, thank you all for, for the three uh, points and three questions. Um, I wouldn't quite say that what I'm looking for in Fanon is somebody who's not capitalist and not Marxist. Rather, I would say uh, an alternative that's not capitalist and not suffering from the limitations of post-Marx Marxism. Because I think that Marx, uh, in a certain sense, like Fanon, is a thinker that we constantly must return to in order to deal with the problems of our era. And I think there's actually one point on which the two of them come very close together, even though one might not expect it. And so it's on the, and I'll give you three points here of what you thought when you asked what three aspects of, a, of an alternative society. 
One, obviously, would be the abolition of the fundamental inequality uh, that defines uh, today the global division of labor, uh, the class systems that exist in the, in the world, the fact that those who produce value receive so little of it, and those who, who do produce so little of it have so much of it. Uh, certainly, this is something that Marx talks a great deal about. Uh, he talks about it in terms of the alienation between the product and the producer. That in any kind of genuine alternative non-capitalist society, that class inequality, that discrepancy would have to be annihilated. But you know, there's another thing for Marx. Uh, I think one of the big problems that uh, often people make about Marx is they think that's mainly what he was interested in. But it's not. You see, as I put it in my book, uh, to be alienated from the product of your labor is one thing. To be alienated from your very being is another thing. Marx's main critique of capitalism is not that the workers don't get as much as the capitalists get to run off with the proceeds of their labor. Marx's main critique is not that the workers create the value and the capitalists get the value. His main critique of capitalism is the existence of value production itself. That is, that labor power itself takes on the form of value. That is something that can be enumerated as a monetary equivalent. That is, human relations take on the form of relations between things. So when you're alienated from your product, that's one thing. But when you're alienated in the sense of being treated as a commodity, you're alienated from your very being. Now that's the second aspect. Any kind of an alternative society, you have to annihilate that situation. But I think Fanon picked this up in understanding. Is he wanted Black Skin, White Mask. The original title was supposed to be an essay on the disalienation of the black person. He had to change the title because his editor didn't like that title. Uh, but um, what does he mean by disalienation? He says that what racism does is it alienates you from your own being. You are not viewed as who you are. You are viewed in terms of a pre predetermined, racialized way of seeing. So when you see the other, the other sees you. They're not seeing you. So there's a breakdown in the very structure of your being. This is why he says the black inhabits a zone of non-being. Uh, this is an extreme condition of alienation. If that's not eliminated, then you don't have an alternative society. Okay, so that's the second. But they both of them, there's two sides, one, one foot is in Fanon and the other foot is in Marx. Okay? And the third, which I would have to say, is uh, the understanding of reciprocity and recognition. Again, not recognition of saying, I want to be recognized by those who are beating me up, please treat me well. You know, some people misunderstand. Uh, there's a lot of people talking about recognition like this. Do you really want to go read Yurik Habermas uh, on this? But in other words, uh, Fanon is going much, much deeper than on this kind of a liberal conception of recognition. Uh, there's a, uh, any kind of a fundamental change of society would have to involve new human relationships in which there is actual reciprocity between human beings and they deal with each other for who they are in all their difference, in all their contingency, in all their contradictions without flattening uh, those relationships out. So that's one thing that I would say. Second thing I would have to say, a very good point that you raised on the very disturbing developments that we saw uh, with Sarissa. One of Fanon's greatest contributions, I think, was his understanding of the uh, problem of political organizations that become detached from the masses and that fail to articulate their real sentiments. And in other words, Fanon was a virulent critic of a single party and a virulent critic of uh, the notion of a single party state, yes? Uh, he was extremely uh, concerned that the traditional concepts of organization that prevailed in the anti-colonial movement 
were leading to a situation in which there would be an inevitable growth of the separation of leaders and ranks. And maybe perhaps we're seeing that in many of these political movements that you mentioned. So I think that we also get something from Fanon to a very refreshing critique of elitism and hierarchy within progressive organizations, okay, which I think we have to uh, pay a lot of attention to. Second thing, very important question on political Islam. You know, Fanon, when he got to Algeria, didn't know much about Islam, and frankly, didn't know much about Algeria. Uh, he did not go there to take part in the National Liberation Movement. He came there uh, to work in a psychiatric hospital. Okay? And his knowledge of the national struggle was relatively limited at that point when he first showed up in January 1953. But he became a quick learner. Um, and one thing that he does when he's working uh, as a psychiatrist early on, already by 1954, he's traveling out to the rural areas to learn more about Islam. And he tries to learn Arabic, never became fluent in it. Fanon did not have a dismissive attitude towards Islam by any way, shape, or form. Fanon uh, understood the important cultural contributions of Islam and was very interested in learning more about them. Okay? Um, at the same time, in terms of political Islam, there was already a fight within the FLN within the several months after Fanon already had joined the movement uh, in 1955 over whether the FLN should define itself as a secular democratic socialist organization or whether it should be defined as an Arab nationalist or as a political Islamic movement. The original decision at the Suman conference, of course, was that it would be the first, not the second. And Fanon lined up with people like Abani, who argued very vociferously for a secular socialist uh, FLN. But there was always a tension. There was always political Islamic elements within the FLN leadership. And these conflicts became uh, stronger as the years went on, leading ultimately to Abani's murder at the hands of other members of the FLN, which uh, Fanon always said there was two events in his life that he felt the most regretful about. That was the death of Abani and the death of Lumumba. Mm -hmm. right? And he asked, what could we have done to stop that, those two from happening? Okay? Uh, one was done by imperialism, but the other was done by the revolutionaries themselves. Uh, now, there is, of course, uh, near the end of his life, a very important letter, I'll just be brief on this, that he wrote to the uh, Iranian uh, philosopher uh, Ali Shariati. They had a brief exchange, which I talk about in my book, where Shariati was trying to uh, relate to Noam's ideas uh, to, the, uh, to Shia Islam and wanted to know whether uh, he sent some of Fanon's, some of his work. Later on, Ali Shariati, of course, translated Fanon into Farsi. And they had a very interesting back and forth, short, but interesting back and forth in this question. Fanon says, I appreciate your work in this area because this could become a bulwark against Western imperialism. Uh, however, I'm very wary about bringing political Islam into any relationship to revolutionary politics, right? In any further uh, cemented form than that, uh, because he feared that this would feed into retrogression. One of the most prophetic things that Fanon understood is that. The formation of the nation state in Africa was very precarious in the post-independence period, and that once that precariousness showed itself, he said, the state will break apart into tribal rivalries, and the tribal rivalries will ultimately descend into religious rivalries, and there will be massacres between and Islam and Christianity, and there will be massacres within Islam. This is what the Trinom said in 1961. So uh, I think, uh, unfortunately, the events have borne him out. Um, on uh, Mujahid, uh, so it was a uh, FLN journal, and um, Fanon uh, began to work on it in, uh, in uh, 1957. So, <coughs> just to put it in, in context, in 1956, 
the strategy from the Italian uh, had a change with the, uh, the, the French Federation, so the Italian in Europe became more and more important, and uh, the journal uh, also became more and more important. And so the, the articles he wrote in El Mujahid never were signed by France, so they were anonymous. And um, when Maspero um, first, so Maspero, I don't know if it's possible to compare, but it's maybe like Verso, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, <laughs> he, he published, um, also he also published uh, Malcolm X, or I don't know, Che Guevara, and Rosa Luxembourg also. So, uh, yes, when Maspero wanted to, um, to publish this letter, he asked um, both uh, Fanon's wife, uh, Josie, and Reda Kated, Reda, wait a minute, um, well, Reda Malek, um, the, who was the, the chief redactor of, of El Mujahid, um, to wrote two lists. So, um, Fanon's wife wrote a very big list, and Reda Malek wrote on this list, uh, and so there were some, uh, some articles we are pretty sure uh, they were written by Fanon. But when Maspero wanted to publish it, Reda Malek sent, uh, sent him a letter to say it would be a mistake, a political mistake, to, to publish this as a, as a work of uh, an individual because it is part of, um, of a wider um, uh, struggle, so it is an integral part of the of the film. Um, so um, yes, but um, so this is important. I mean, when we when one reads uh, these articles that you can have in um, I don't know what's the English name uh, pour la révolution africaine. Yeah, okay. So pour the African Revolution. Um, so when you read this kind of, of articles, other the, the text the just was uh, was published in France, um, you have to keep this in mind. Uh, uh, on political uh, Islam, very quickly, um, yeah, I think um, uh, Peter told uh, the, the importance, uh, even if it was not very long, the correspondence between Fanon and Ali Shariati had. Um, and Chariati uh, was in France in 1959 uh, during the Algerian Revolution, and he went uh, to a barber shop and uh, in Paris. And this barber shop was actually a uh, FLN activist, and so it was this barber shop who put it in contact with uh, FLN members, and uh, he became very interested in it, and he was in, in touch with um, with Fanon. But well, on the on uh, the, the religious the idea of uh, had on religion, um, it would necessitate, I think, a longer discussion because, um, well, uh, there, is, um, there were a lot of debates during the Algerian revolutions. I mean, um, for example, the Communist Party of Algeria, who was actually just the copy of the French Communist Party, um, put some, uh, some activists um, uh, out from the party because they were Muslims or for, well, uh, like Amar um, Bouzgan, who is uh, the most famous, and uh, after the thing is that uh, there were a lot of debate, like Amar um, Bouzgan wrote a book where he explained that uh, the Algerian Communist Party did not understand uh, anything to the, the world, the social world, 
uh, religion play. So he had not um, theological arguments, because arguments were not ab about theology, but about the social role it plays. And um, but um, this book uh, was published just after Thomas did, so they hadn't uh, debate together. But uh, on the religion and um, and in colonialism, uh, there's a lot to speak about. <laughs> I wasn't expecting to do that. Right. Uh, well, thank you. I guess I'm just going to say um, two things about um, uh, the, the question, because I think the, the question that you raised about Islam is, is quite significant for all times, particularly uh, given uh, France and, and Fanon and the role of the left, actually. So um, I think there are two things to be said. When, when you read uh, Fanon and you read some of the things that uh, imperialists and members of a very Stalinized communist party that does not represent the universal left, but a particular section of the left, which is the Stalinized communist party, the way they're talking about Islam, unfortunately, sounds so familiar. It could be something that you're reading about the reporting of Charlie Hebdo killings right now. Okay, so the the uh, the, the echoes of uh, of the way uh, the imperialists and some people are talking about Algeria and, and Islam uh, and and what Fanon is responding to is. Um, despondently familiar to us, right? So this is something that Fanon is drawing attention to. He's not um, uh, not uh, uh, unafraid, he's completely unafraid to take this on, even though it is, in a sense, our side. But Fanon is not afraid to debate the left in order to clarify uh, the, the position here. The other thing that I think is quite significant for our times for Fanon, uh, that, that we can uh, look to uh, Fanon's thought for on this regard, is um, you know when, um, when the Charlie Hebdo incident happened, um, I wrote an article at the time, I'm not plugging my article, but the reason what I'm saying is, is because I went back and watched Battle of the Algiers, okay, and the reason, and, and I think it's a brilliant film, everyone uh, should take a look um, uh, if you get a chance, and uh, what was uncannily familiar, which is why I wanted to write about it, is Battle of Algiers, for those of you who know the movie well, you know it begins with the young Ali, right, and he meets the FLN in prison, because the racist police have, uh, have imprisoned him, and then he's, in, he's in prison, and that's where he meets the FLN. Now, if you read the Charlie Hebdo um, uh, about the incident, the, uh, the, two, the two young brothers who are of Algerian origin from a working-class neighborhood in Paris was put in prison. That's where they met with Islamist networks, etc. What is missing between the previous Ali, who's in Battle of Algiers, and the two brothers, who unfortunately took the position they did, was a revolutionary organization, the FLN. Okay, that is unfortunately missing because that was an anti-colonial struggle, which Fanon got involved in. The uh, the the options, I think, for. Uh, a new generation in France or elsewhere, the 
the necessity of our times is to recreate and rethink the need for revolutionary organizations. Because without a revolutionary organization, there is actually no resistance to the onslaught of imperialism and racism within not just international uh, context, but within national boundaries. And I think that's where Ali in the film becomes a revolutionary, whereas the two tragic young uh, brothers make the mistake of taking an individual terroristic uh, solution to which we understand the context for, but we certainly do not support, but we understand the context is created by imperialism, but the lack of a revolutionary organization is tragic in our moment in time. And I think Fanon is drawing our attention to creative ways for not just mass involvement, but also to have institutions in place which can carry forward this work and to have that memory of those class and of mass struggles to transmit to a new generation. Uh, next round of questions. I particularly encourage contributions and will prioritize contributions from women singers. We had three men in the last round. So first up, Ash. Um, 
she was attacked and uh, the rising escalating Islamophobia was so strong that that was the aspect of her through which she was recognized. She donned the veil as an act of political um, uh, protest actually. Um, and so the argument um, that is used for emancipation that first of all, the argument that anyone can liberate another people is just complete nonsense, right? Emancipation should come from the oppressed. It is the task of the working class to emancipate itself, not some guru from above. So that argument is absolute nonsense. However, the, the important thing to understand is, uh, you know, everybody quotes Marx that it's the opium, he said it's the opium of the people, that religion is the opium of the people. Actually, you have to read the entire thing. He says it is the heart of a heartless world, it is the sigh of the oppressed. In other words, you have to understand the conditions of that produces religion and that make people understand religion as an emancipatory project rather than look at religion itself to understand why some people think that donning the veil can be a political act. And I think this attack upon um, the, 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 uh, the rising es uh, uh, Islamophobia or an attack on people, I mean, there is a well, there is actually a wonderful article by uh, my friend uh, and comrade Jim Wolfries that goes through the various municipalities in France that have passed various laws by way of which children are barred from getting into swimming pools, that mothers can drop off their children. So it is basically affecting the social fabric and making it hostile in a way for um, um, people of the Islamic faith to be in public spaces in front. Is it any wonder that from this climate it is political Islam that will recruit? Because if Islam is shown to be an enemy, then we want to then that is the ideal ground for an organization which is actually reactionary like ISIS to recruit. Because you understand the anger that the oppressed will feel because they're being seen as a terrorist per se. So the job of the left is actually to defend uh, 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 against Islamophobia because only then can you talk about an emancipatory project not by condemnation but through acts of solidarity and in this case to actually build barricades against this Islamophobic attack. Uh, yes, I just want to uh, say a few words. First, on this question of the uh, of the veil, uh, I agree with what Tiffany just said, that uh, I'm against also the French war about the veil, and I'm certain that if the one was alive, he would be against it too. But I also want to say that uh, it's a complex question what he said about the veil in his writings, and Algeria unveiled, and it takes up a whole chapter of my book because it's a, it's not a simple issue. What I was looking at was a moment in a process of liberation where women were told that wearing the veil makes you backward and et cetera, et cetera. You must take this veil off. Women found a way in a certain moment in the revolutionary struggle. By wearing the veil, they could conceal themselves from the French and aid the liberation movement. 
But this does not mean that Fanon was giving a normative uh, justification or argument in favor of veiling women. It was a descriptive argument. He was describing a moment in a process of liberation that he then says, however, this moment of negation of the French authority by putting on the veil as a, act of, a symbolic act or an actual act of resistance itself has to be negated because it's still dependent upon the object of its critique. Fanon understood something that's extremely important, that simply being against something does not mean you transcend its parameters. <coughs> so he says, at a certain point in the liberation movement, the women then realize after they have reveiled themselves that they need to unveil themselves, not because of what the colonial colonizer says, but because by precisely getting a mind of their own through the liberation process, they realize that we need to go further in the liberation struggle and there's no reason for me to continue to wear the veil, okay? So he's tracing out an actual process of emancipation. So it's very important to see that, otherwise one could easily think that, well, he's normatively endorsing a specific form of practice as, so to speak, the role that everyone should take, and it's not what he's doing. Fanon is extremely situational in his understanding of these issues. That's why I would also say that <clears throat> Fanon certainly uh, with, uh, uh, well, Islamophobia, of course, is, uh, is, uh, is, is inseparable in many respects from colonialism, and of course the French knew how to practice that in Algeria, uh, just like we're facing it today. But I think what, uh, what the, 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 at the same time we have to keep in mind that I think Fanon's type of politics is one that would not countenance left-wing progressive forces that justify or allow Islamic fundamentalism in the name of anti-imperialism. Fanon understood, and this is what makes him especially rele relevant to, to today, that there's such a thing called the counter-revolutionary anti-imperialism. Okay? Not all forms of anti-imperialism lead to uh, genuine national liberation. This is why he opposed this two-stage theory notion that first we go through national liberation or even nationalism, and then we'll get to deal with these other social transformative issues later. He said we need to find a way to skip the bourgeois democratic phase in the developing world because of his understanding that, uh, that these two sides of the problem, people would draw into the identity in an exclusive and many times reactionary manner, and he was uh, arguing that uh, the left should not have an uncritical attitude of that, even if it's used sometimes in the service of anti-imperialist struggle, okay? So what has to be very concrete about this, course, now what we're facing in the world today is a far more egregious and reactionary form of, uh, of Islamic fundamentalism than what even Fanon had to face uh, in North Africa. Uh, on the question of cultural diversity, this is a very important question, because um, one thing that's very uh, interesting about Fanon is, first of all, he always argued, that black skin, white masks, he said, what I'm saying applies to the Caribbean, to the Antilles. Right? He said, I'm denying that what my observations are about uh, the relation of black and white and the struggle for recognition necessarily have universal significance. But then later on, he said, well, it has to say more than just the Antilles, you see? So he, he is always grounded in a very phenomenological, situational set of experiences, and then he then, he, he sees where the argument takes him, and he can say, oh, by the way, this relates to other things that I didn't think about before, right? Now, even more concretely, when he gets to Algeria, what's one of the first things that he does is he visits Kabil communities in the countryside, because he didn't really know the difference between the Arab and the Kabil communities in Algeria, uh, which is what uh, the Berbers are called in Algeria, and uh, he became quite fascinated at the cultural differentiations between the Kabils 
And the Arabs that he understood as a psychiatrist that Kabil patients respond differently to his therapy than Muslim than other Muslim Arab patients. Of course, Kabil was also Muslim, but he saw that they were responding to his efforts at psychiatric treatment in different ways, and he realized he didn't know how to deal with that because he didn't understand enough about their diversity. So some of his most important psychiatric papers actually deal with specific differentiations within national communities uh, in Algeria. Now, of course, he then, of course, becomes uh, an ambassador to Sub-Saharan Africa in 1959. And now, of course, his net is spread much wider. Um, but even there, his work as a revolutionary ambassador is always linked to his work in Algeria as a representative of the FLN. But he also studies very, very carefully uh, uh, many of the traditions of the culture that he's looking at. And you know, one thing that Fanon always said, he didn't like people who uh, held themselves back. Right? But he would have these late night discussions to learn more about a particular area, a particular culture, and somebody says, well, you know, I gotta leave, I've gotta go to sleep now. He says, you know, he slept three and a half hours a day. Uh, he says, no, you have, let's keep going until we can dig this out. And you can see this in a lot of his correspondence as well. Uh, so there was definitely that sense of things. Uh, on the Morocco, actually, some very interesting things. He actually, I think he calls, doesn't he, Wretched of the Earth, refer to Morocco as a sub-imperialism? at a certain point that there's a, there's a potential of sub-imperialism submerging in Africa. Uh, uh, Patrick Bond has a very interesting, South Africa has a very interesting book on the BRICS app uh, that was published uh, just recently by Verso, uh, which looks at South Africa, Brazil, Russia, etc., as sub-imperialisms of their own. Huh? And of course, anybody knows what's going on in Africa knows about the reach of uh, South Africa's military and economic might throughout the continent, uh, some of which is not all so innocent and non-nefarious. Uh, but in terms of Algeria, of Morocco, we actually have some commentary on this because, after all, the Moroccans pulled back from aiding the FLN very early, right? And he, he kind of sees where that is headed logically. Okay? Uh, by the way, I should mention um, that there's a very dear friend of mine, Mati Mojib, who's a Moroccan uh, journalist and uh, a writer and translator. Do you know Mati? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You do know yeah. Mati? I do. Oh, thank God. Thank you very much. Uh, he was uh, on hunger strike for 20 days. Uh, he was arrested by the Moroccan authorities for his uh, writings and his uh, uh, opposition. Uh, but he was just, I think, yesterday, yeah. he was, uh, they caved into his demands and they released him from jail. So uh, there is, uh, I'm very glad that you know about that. Uh, uh, I, lastly, I think some of the most uh, urgent and long-lasting conceptions of Fanon, which curiously also takes him back to Marx. Fanon was trying to figure out if the national bourgeoisie in Africa is incapable of leading the way to economic development and true uh, emancipation, and if it's necessary to skip that phase of rule by the national bourgeoisie, how is that going to be effectuated? And that has a lot to do with what he said about violence, which we haven't talked about much here, uh, has a lot to do with what he says about the peasantry as a key uh, revolutionary force. There's a lot to do with what he talks about the single party state is the modern form of the dictation of the bourgeoisie, as he puts it. Yeah. Uh, all these things are part of his effort to figure out how to get beyond that uh, national bourgeois phase. But the interesting thing that I try to draw out in my book is that he's actually, and a lot of people don't seem to notice this, is he's actually dialoguing with the discussion that was happening in the pre communist, uh, pre Stalinist communist movement of the early 1920s, where they were also discussing, hey, now they made a revolution in Russia, is it possible that India, China, other of these countries in the Middle East, can they, can, with our, their, our assistance possibly, uh, get to a socialist transition without having to endure a long stage of rule by the national bourgeoisie? We now know for a fact that he was studying that material, 
he was engaging it, and he was thinking about it, and he actually says in the right to the earth, I'm discussing an issue that's been debated for the last 50 years, I just want 1961 minus 50 and get 1912, it's pretty much 40 years, but I mean, it's pretty much what was going on. So when we look at Fanon's work as a whole, we can see some very interesting threads of, that he was drawing from, from a lot of different sources, <coughs> in the course of developing a rather unique perspective. Um, well, uh, on, uh, on Morocco, um, I, well, one of Fanon's uh, main ideas, well, I will not speak a lot about it because uh, I agree with uh, what you just said, but one of Fanon's big ideas was that independence does not mean uh, decolonization, mechanically decolonization. Um, so I, I, I totally uh, agree with you when you say that some people uh, cannot find a job because they don't speak French. And, um, uh, I know that very well because uh, uh, my, my father's Moroccan and his family, uh, one, uh, some of his brothers went in French school and the others went in uh, uh, Arabic one. So uh, <laughs> you see the difference after. So well, um, on this, on, the, on what you are saying, on the relation now from uh, uh, some um, countries from Maghreb to France, for example, um, there is, uh, I think, a key thinker which is not very well known now uh, because she only wrote in French. Uh, it's uh, Sadri Khari who wrote uh, a French uh, book uh, about racism, uh, racism in France called La Contre-Revolution Colonial, so Colonial Contre-Revolution. But he recently wrote an article in, um, in an Italian Marxist journal that I can't remember his name about uh, whiteness in Tunisia. Uh, so how, um, uh, how race uh, relations are different, uh, but exist even if uh, in a country uh, which is actually um, uh, a former colony. Uh, so but this would necessitate um, a lot of uh, more discussion. Uh, so on the, on, again, women, I don't, uh, of course, the, the, a lot of French people thought they were superior to the to, uh, Arab, to Arabs, um, but I think the question of women was also uh, a very important strategic question uh, for the colonial power uh, because there was this idea, and I think Fanon quoted in, in his book *A Dying Colonial*, uh, that um, we have to um, win over the women first, and then we will have. Uh, the, the rest of, of the of the game. So I also was at the, the panel uh, that you mentioned uh, this morning um, when this um, uh, Iranian uh, speaker uh, said that her mom was uh, even if, if she was secular um, was putting away um, when once uh, as an act of resistance. Not in itself, but because when one uh, provides you to, to put the way, she was putting even if she was not, um, she did not especially believe in God and so on. And, and I think it was Foucault, uh, uh, Foucault when he was in Iran, wrote to uh, the Corriere della Sera in Italy and explained exactly the same thing, that his uh, translator was a, a secular woman and um, uh, but uh, as she was uh, sewing the, the, the role, the social role played uh, of the, by the whale, 
she put it, uh, uh, even if she was very, very secular. Um, and so I think it's, so yeah. I, I think so, so the relation from Fanon to, to this question is, uh, is, is much complex than, uh, yeah, as, as Peter said, uh, it's, it's very much complex. But I, will, I want to speak a bit more about uh, the heritage of um, Islamophobia in France. And uh, just to say that what Titi uh, said earlier, uh, I agree with that. But if she says the same, the same thing in France, she will probably be called uh, an Islamic fundamentalist, uh, <laughs> an ally, an objective ally of terrorism, and so on and so on. Um, and I, don't, I know that uh, very well because um, after the, the Charlie Hebdo events, uh, the party I'm part of, the Parti des Anges de la République, was actually um, accused by some, uh, some people, even from the left, even from the radical left, um, to uh, give the, the weapons to the, to the terrorists, actually. So, and a lot of people uh, lost their jobs, but uh, the, the, the classical trade unions um, were not that active on these people who were losing their jobs. Um, I know that I don't, uh, a few years ago, uh, a woman with, uh, who was wearing the wave was working um, in a kindergarten uh, with his child, and uh, the, the the conservative party uh, from France wanted to um, uh, to fire uh, her, and uh, it was supported by the Front de Gauche, by the, the left uh, the left organization in France. So uh, an organization coming from the left uh, was fighting in order that the woman lost her job. So this was um, really um, incredible. And uh, last Saturday, I was at a big demonstration in Paris, uh, the March for Dignity. Um, it was an organization. Uh, it was a demonstration organized by uh, a group of um, non-white women, so exclusively uh, non-white women. But in the demonstration, there were a lot of people. But the organizer were women, and no. Uh, no single um, mainstream feminist organization supported this. All the, all the organization who always told, uh, yeah, that we want to save our uh, Arabic uh, women and so on, uh, we didn't hear them. So it, it was really incredible. Um, and there was, of course, a debate in the radical left, even if the NPR, uh, in the NPR, um, which I have the deepest respect for, um, and uh, a lot of anarchists were against us. Um, yes, uh, recently I met some, some very racist anarchists, actually. <laughs> um, and um, well, it's. Uh, but I have to say, in these organizations, there is also a struggle in the organizations. Um, as you said earlier, I'm, I'm part of uh, the, the French Journal period, and in the uh, board, uh, so I'm from the Partisan Gender de la République, but there are people from the NPR, from uh, Ensemble, uh, from other organizations. So these are people who are um, really fighting uh, in their organization uh, on these questions. Um, so <laughs> I don't want to be optimistic because um, I'm really not. <laughs> so but there, there, is, uh, there are some people who are, who are, who are fighting against, against this. Uh, in the organizations, and uh, especially there's um, a big problem when um, uh, non-white people wants to do politics. 
Um, so, I mean, a lot of the a big part of the left agrees that um, that well, non-white people are in uh, NGOs, organizations, or uh, trade unions, and so which is really really good, uh, I think. But they have a problem when uh, it comes to the question of uh, uh, political power. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not a nationalist or a separatist. But this is not the question. But uh, well, when when it comes to the priority, political priorities of non-white people, uh, the left is does not feel well, uh, and it's it was a <laughs> it was a, this since a, a while. I mean, uh, the, the French Communist Party during the Algerian Revolution was really a terrible party, and recently I was invited to a meeting on Islamophobia in Strasbourg in France, and it was organized by a, a Stalinist uh, circle. I didn't know that. I didn't know that the Stalinist did not exist like this. It was very schematic, and um, they, um, and and really it was it was terrible um, because there was they were explaining that well that you know racism and, um, and, and well uh, Islamophobia but all kinds of racism are are secondary contradictions. So it's, it's very peripheral. And I just wanted to say a last thing uh, because uh, as um, you are, I think, mainly interested about, about uh, uh, Great Britain. Uh, Satnam Birdi uh, wrote uh, an excellent book about uh, Britain, uh, Racism, Class, and the Racial Outsiders. And it shows very well that in the making of the English working class, uh, racism was not uh, peripheral, but central. So um, it is, um, it, she uh, takes, um, uh, you know, the, the classical work by E.P. Uh, Samson, uh, but she rewrote on it uh, in order to show both uh, when the working class was very racist, I think um, um, mainly in the uh, 1840s and, and 50s, um, when a lot of um, demonstration for progressive things from a working class point of view uh, were, um, were against Jews who were just arriving. Um, of in the in the 1940s and 50s, but also the real solidarity that exists um, between the left and the and the the, the Russian left outsiders um, at some moment in history. So it's a very very good book. Sorry, racism, class, and racism, class, and the Russian outsiders. So it's a well. Um, Can you you yeah. yeah. Uh, so the author is Satnam Virdi, uh, and the book is Racism, Class, and the Racialized Outsiders. Um, well, and it's very interesting because the solidarity between the left and the, um, uh, the non-white people uh, did not exist as such as such in France. So there are similar movements in France, like the movement of Arab workers in the 70s, um, but the, the left has a, a bigger problem, I think, in France. And um, I am also working on, on Germany. Uh, <coughs> tomorrow I'm presenting a paper on, on German anti-imperialism. Um, and uh, well, I think, uh, well, I'm very pessimistic about uh, France uh, because of its, because of its colonial history. But also Germany, who uh, the German left, has uh, learned nothing from the, the history, and uh, I don't want to be too 
severe or radical uh, about this, that there is a, a real problem, um, and uh, a whole part of the Marxist left, who is uh, speaking uh, about uh, the state and so on, is in France very chauvinistic. Um, that well, um, well, uh, I'm, I'm done with this, but it would necessitate, necessitate uh, another conversation of it. Um, by the way, uh, if uh, some activists are here uh, afterward, uh, you can come and give me your contacts. So it's always uh, always good to have uh, other contacts um, in other countries.
you said um, at the end of what you said, uh, Professor, about the about what people's impressions were, what they thought Bannon mm -hmm. meant to them, and uh, it made me think of when I, the first time I read the book, I must have been about 16 or so, and I remember the most powerful part of the book for me, or the most moving part of the book, after reading his analysis or his about his treatment of people who've been tortured in Algeria. He then went on to give a, a chapter about, well, I think it was a chapter, it might be the same chapter about the effect on the torturers themselves yeah. and, and the, the brutalization of the people who are doing the, these terrible things as well. And, I, and, I, and I, that's the first time I ever heard that. So, you know, obviously I have great feelings of indignance against uh, the terrible things that have been done. That's the first time I've heard seen that properly what begins to be explored, this idea of the brutalization of society and the societies that colonial societies are not only brutalizing the the, the people that they're invading and, and subjugating, but they're also brutalizing themselves. And I think it opened up for me a lot of questions and a lot of areas of interest in in how we could, how this idea of changing society has to happen, it also has to deal with these uh, brutalized uh, colonists and, and colonial societies and first world societies. Well, thank you. Um, yes, in South Africa, there's no country in the world where I think Fanon is more avidly read and intensely read and debated than South Africa. When I was in South Africa several years ago, uh, when I was staying in one of the townships, uh, People were coming up to me and, uh, with tattered copies of The Wretched of the Earth and saying, oh, we want to try to translate this into Endebelli or Shona or what have you. Uh, you know how we can go about doing that? Uh, I mean, there were really, I mean, a lot of the stuff has been translated to all kinds of uh, different places and languages, but the intensity of the debate within the townships about a discussion and reading of phenomena, among the youth especially, is really quite astonishing. And of course, there's a very direct reason for that is because even though there's not a direct fit in some respects between much of what Fanon was looking at in the late 50s in Africa and the South African experience, because after all, of course, South Africa was very different than much of the rest of uh, uh, Africa at the time. Certainly, the, it was predominant. The, the role of the working class played a very huge role in the dismantling of apartheid, the labor movement. Uh, and of course, the peasantry did not play the same kind of role in South Africa in the liberation movement that Phenom was singling out elsewhere in Africa. But the real connection is, of course, that Phenom won uh, against this whole notion of this two-stage theory of revolution, which, uh, that is, first you uh, have a national liberation struggle and you have a national program of capitalist development for so many years, and then that supposedly is going to improve things to the point that you can then get ready for socialism. Or as one person once told me when I was uh, having a conversation uh, on my first uh, trip to South Africa, uh, and uh, this was bef right after the, uh, maybe a year and a half after uh, Mandela was elected. Uh, and um, uh, I can tell you who it was, but I won't mention his name right now. Let's just say he was the information minister of the ANC. Uh, we were having a discussion, and uh, uh, I raised some questions about the ANC's policy, um, the townships especially, and he said, well, you must understand, Peter, uh, that we see our task as the same task that the uh, Indian national movement faced after independence, the creation of a black bourgeoisie. That's the historical task on the agenda. And I said to him, well, look where that got India. Um, and I was told to be careful what I said. In any case, <laughs> uh, 
what, this are complex questions here, but just to be very briefly, what Biko understood, why he was so drawn to Fanon, is that the policy of the South African Communist Party, which let's remember to this day controls one-third of the ANC seats in the South African Parliament, right, uh, embodied this two-stage theory, right? Uh, the only problem is, is that the second stage never shows up. <laughs> okay, so uh, you you, play, uh, you have the gear program. You adopt this neoliberal uh, uh, economic program. You allow make a deal with well, uh, political power will be uh, given allowed to be taken by the black majorities, but economic power will remain with the with the white minority. That was the deal that was made in '91. Yes, and South Africa has suffered from from ever since. And it was justified by this exact two-stage theory of revolution that the more serious revolutionists were arguing against in the early 1920s, that Fanon was arguing against in the 1950s. Um, and that's why I think one reason why Fanon is such a live figure there today is because they, the South African are living through the consequence of this. And um, you're absolutely right that it's protecting white capital at all costs, because this is basically the development program of the government. They actually cut prop. They cut. They cut tax rates. They cut corporate tax rates after '94 on white capital, uh, thinking that that was going to attract all this foreign capital into Africa and allow the economic development to go up. As you know, it didn't happen. Right? Why? Because there still was pretty organized trade union movement in South Africa that uh, foreign capital was not wild about uh, moving their business there. Uh, on the question of, uh, I discussed this in detail about Fanon's relationship to um, the working class in Europe and um, uh, political protests and opposition movements in Europe, but rather in detail in my book. Uh, there's an evolution of Fanon's thinking on this, by the way. It's not a straight line, and it's not a simple narrative. Uh, when he first is writing the El Mujahideen, uh, he takes a very, it's right after he has realized, my gosh, the most so-called radical forces in France, like the French Communist Party, the French Socialist Party, are no, not only no better, but even worse in some respects in the right wing when it comes to maintaining French colonial rule in Algeria. Don't forget, it was the Socialist Party, and then this France, who becomes prime minister. Fanon actually writes uh, at the time that, well, maybe they'll, the Socialist government is coming to power in France. Maybe they'll negotiate with the FLN. And then, of course, they imposed uh, martial law under a Socialist government in France with the Communist Party's blessing. Uh, and, of course, all this torture became endemic from that point. So he was very embittered at this moment in the mid-1950s. And so he writes several pieces in El Moshe Hadid saying the European working class has abandoned its historical mission. Uh, and uh, they're acting, there's no fundamental difference that one can perceive between their, their actions and the actions of their ruling class, which they're supposedly a, you know, would be against. But when you look a year and a half later, he writes another piece and he says, when there starts to be an opposition movement, even though it's a very marginalized one in France, opposing the war in Algeria and seeking to solidarize with the FLN, he says it's often been forgotten that there is not a community of interests between the working class in the Western world and the ruling class. Well, who forgot this? He forgot it. <laughs> but he's remembering it now when he sees these moments of opposition or these indications arising. When Fanon writes at the very end of Wretched of the Earth, let us leave this Europe, which is never ceases talking of man and murders man everywhere you can find it, he's not literally talking of turning your back on Europe. Uh, by the way, isn't it ironic that so many people who are attracted to Fanon's ideas today are trying to flood into Europe? Uh, it's an interesting thing that you talk about with refugees coming from the Middle East and North Africa and what's involved in that. He's not literally saying that. He's talking about let us turn from the, away from the values of Europe. 
Okay, the European values of this this claim to be enlightened humanism, but then to massacre people with the most disregard of their human rights, right? This is what we should turn our backs on. It's not literally turning one's backs on the possibility of an opposition within uh, Europe one day arising to this uh, barbarism. He did not look at this with rose-colored glasses, however. He was dealing with the situation at this time. He leaves by the end of his life, the door slightly ajar, but like Selim, he's not overly optimistic, okay? But he does not close the door uh, completely to this. Um, now, uh, the question uh, about, um, what was the other question about uh, the third one? Black Panthers? Yes, Black Panthers, great question. Uh, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure a phenomenon would have been thrilled with the Black Panthers. Um, and I think the reason both was because of its militancy, but it's not like they engaged in wanton violence. Yes. Most of it, it was a symbolic militancy in some respects in terms of picking up guns. How many, right? Uh, but uh, it's very important symbolic, however, because it was a, it was a catalyzing, galvanizing movement that uh, stood up to white authority. Um, it was also not a nationalist movement, but it was a national liberation movement. Bobby Steele always said, "We're not nationalists; we're for national liberation." And they read Fanon, of course, themselves. Fanon actually met, we believe, with Malcolm X in Ghana in 1958. Uh, of course, that's not the Black Panthers, but. Uh, there, was a, there was some kind of discussion there. One day I'd like to know what the fly in the wall would be pointing uh, to that discussion, but we don't actually have a, a clear idea what was going on. But um, I'm sure that Fanon would have been absolutely thrilled with the Panthers in, in the 60s. Um, uh, and um, now on the question of torture, a really wonderful question. See, here's where Fanon's humanism is very, becomes very interesting. And where, it, uh, if you're still wondering if that's a dirty word, this might cure you from your uh, prejudice. In other words, um, of course, many of the people that came to his clinic were uh, revolutionary fighters who had been, would be, had been tortured by the French, yes, and they were coming for psychiatric treatment, in some cases medical treatment, and Fanon was secretly aiding them, right, and giving them uh, free counsel and um, treatment. Um, as you mentioned, he talks at length in one episode where a French uh, military officer comes to his clinic and says, Can, I understand that you're very good at dealing with victims of torture, but I need to talk to you from a different angle. Uh, and Fanon says, what's that? He says, well, I've been engaged for three and a half years now in doing this systematic, professional torture, taking people down to the basement and torturing them to death. Uh, often, not to get information, but simply, it's part of your job. You have to show your boss that you torture so many resistance fighters or civilians that are accused of being that. And he can't sleep, he's sexually impotent. Uh, he's having trouble sleeping at night, yes. Uh, he's having all kinds of uh, violent uh, uh, rages in his head that he can't deal with, etc. And Fanon treats him. Now, Fanon didn't say, I'm not treating you, you're the enemy. See? This is not Fanon's approach. He treated him, and he took him in, and he wrote up very careful notes about his treatment of this individual. And what I think it, what Fanon uh, obviously recognized from this, of course, the victim of torture suffers immensely. But the perpetrator of torture actually, in some respects, suffers more. Because to torture somebody, you cannot be sensitive to their cries of suffering. You have to armor yourself against their cries of pain. And in doing so, you become inured not only to the emotions and feelings of the other, but you become inured to the feelings of your own self. You become self-alienated by boxing yourself off from the, from the pains of others and the suffering of others. 
So now you're actually inflicting upon yourself a kind of torture in being the torturer. So in a certain sense, the, the worst form of alienation is the one that you do to yourself. Okay? And he's seeing this as characteristic of the torturer. Well, where is that coming out of? That's coming out of his insight in black skin, white masks much earlier on, where he argues that the black is not simply is not the only victim of racism. Race the white is even more the victim. The white profits from racial discrimination, and they think they gain, and they do gain materially, obviously, right? Social status, white privilege, etc. But they become psychologically twisted and distorted by their failure and utter incapacity to hear the cries and sufferings of those that they discriminate against and look at it as if they are non-human. And so what, when Fanon talks about disalienation, the process of disalienation has to come from the wretched of the earth, right? It has to come from bottom up, from those who are subjected to these conditions. But it's, it's a catalyst to break the entire chain of alienation and self-alienation that applies to whites as well as blacks. This is why the ultimate aim that I think Fanon had in his entire project, his entire life, was to seek the abolition of racism, but also to seek the abolition of race. Because as Tithia stated in a very beautiful opening comments, if race is a, socially is a social construction, is not a natural attribute, if there is no ontology of blackness, then we are not truly free from racism until we free ourselves from any inclination towards viewing it as an ontology. And we can only be free from that when we uh, eliminate uh, race itself. And by the way, this is not my idea. This is a very far more beautifully expressed by um, Seki Oto, a Ghanaian philosopher that wrote one of the best books available on Fanon, Fanon's dialectical experience. He has a very wonderful discussion of Fanon's effort to seek the death of race as a central theme in his philosophical project. Uh, no, I have no much to add than to recommend you also Sekiotos uh, book. Uh, I also think it's one of the best book written uh, on Fanon. Mm -hmm. um, well, no, actually, um, I have nothing more to add. Uh, maybe um, that uh, not to take because it's a mistake that is some, sometimes true in France. Um, the the uh, mistakes of Marxist movements does not invalidate uh, Marxist. Marxism uh, in itself. I mean, it depends. Uh, Peter wrote this in his book. It depends how you understand Marxism. Do you understand it as some um, some rules or some uh, some some lines yeah, that were written and that you take out of context? And uh, well, no. Uh, I personally understand Marxism as a methodology um, uh, more than. Uh, than religious text, um, so it's not. But the relation from Fanon to, to the left is, is very very interesting, um, because Fanon was was very used in the I mean um, was um, mobilized in the sixties and the seventies by some um, uh, schematically uh, third worldist uh, for uh, Europe. Uh, I mean um, in France and in. Uh, and in Germany, um, and uh, I, I think Fanon's um, critic of, of the left uh, has to, to be put in, in context. Uh, for example, he brought um, a very good uh, critic uh, from Paul Rivet, who was uh, a member of the Front Populaire uh, in the 30s, um, and who was uh, supporting the, Viet the uh, Vietnamese revolution, the Vietnamese resistance. 
and who, um, but who turned uh, and he changes his mind or he, he has a sad uh, political revolution because uh, during the Algerian revolution uh, he defended France because um, as well it's quoted here um, <clears throat> so he uh, he says that um, uh, in, in the Argentine Revolution, there are too much things so, uh, who are against the uh, Western tradition, Europe against Europe, against France, and I quote, we should be proud of um, what Europe brought to the, to the world and um, of what the white man, and he uh, stressed it, yes, the white man uh, has done for culture and civilization. And so, um, uh, Fanon's uh, well, critical dialogue with the left has to be understood um, really uh, in the context. It's, I'm not saying uh, we should, um, because uh, well, when I discuss with some um, activists in France, sometimes uh, I hear this, we should reject the left or the left and the right are the same. I'm, I'm not saying this, um, but maybe it's obvious to you, but uh, it, it really is not for <laughs> a lot of organizations. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, during the Afghan revolution, a uh, whole part of the left, and a big part of the left, had a um, uh, counter-revolutionary uh, attitude. Um, and so this, yeah, I, I think the main, the, the key uh, idea in, in Peter's book is to put Fanon in, in context and not to decontextualize it um, when, when you use it. Uh, this means also, uh, uh, a knowledge about uh, the context in, in which he was writing, uh, the organization he was part of, um, and his evolution. Well, Fanon was not always uh, the same, and his experience um, well, had a, played a big role on him. So uh, that's it.